I think it's so interesting that you went to go see it in the movies. I was eight when the movie came out, by the way. <laughs> I, so it's showing my this, age, Indy. Thank you. Welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyze depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. I'll start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land that I'm recording from today. Uh, We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting the natural environment since time immemorial. We pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to First Nations people listening today. And Indy, what land are you on today? I am on the same land. We are recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Indy. I'm really excited to have you on and I feel very humbled that you're willing to come on this <laughs> little project that I have. Um, That's okay. Do you want to tell me a bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So for those listening who might not be familiar with myself, I'm Indy. I'm a uh, soon-to-be graduate. I study gender, sexuality and diversity and a minor in sociology. And I host my own podcast called Hot Girls Theory. Um, We've been running for just about just over two years now. So we've got quite a lot of content and we are a sex positive feminism podcast exploring the world from the theoretical perspective of two hot girls is our tagline so yeah definitely check us out if you feel like that might be up your alley it's an awesome podcast and I feel like if you like our podcast then you'll definitely love hot girls theory and just to catch everyone up don't forget to for any of our listeners that there's still a fundraiser happening for Gidget Foundation uh, which is perinatal mental health uh, foundation that do awesome work for parents who are going through some perinatal postnatal uh, mental health issues anyone who signs up to the patreon for this month their fees go straight to the fundraiser and there's also a separate fundraiser page that i've set up if you are interested in donating yourself and so far we're halfway through our goal of two hundred dollars so i reckon we can make it indy you reached out because you wanted to be on the podcast and Mm -hmm. i asked what sort of movie you'd like to cover and then when you told me the movie you want to cover i was like (laughs) yes this is what i've been wanting to cover for so long so I'm so stoked what made you stars aligned honestly (laughs) yeah um so it was eternal sunshine of the spotless mind uh Mm -hmm. what made you want to cover this movie so this movie I've referenced in my podcast because uh back in 2020 kind of maybe six months into our podcast Ash and I one of the main goals that we wanted with Hot Girl Series was to explore our past relationships and really reflect on the ways our past relationships didn't work and you know how they could they were toxic and how we could grow from that you know toxic environment because I had actually gone to high school with one of Ash's exes and Adelaide we're both from Adelaide and it's a very small place mm-hmm. so like everyone knows everyone you're kind of putting your fingers in all the pies you can't really <laughs> walk five miles without meeting someone who you know has slept with someone that you know so it sounds similar to Brisbane which is where I grew up (laughs) right yeah it's very yeah very interesting um so for me this movie has always been something that I've kind of uh related to like the relationship between Joel and Clementine has been something that I felt was very close to a relationship that I my largest most impactful relationship that I had so for me uh, I referenced it a lot in that particular episode and had sound bites of you know their conversations and their relationship from the movie throughout the episode so I 
and I just love this movie from like a film nerd perspective mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, that's why I wanted to do it. Awesome. So glad you picked it. And I, I love it for this very similar reasons to you. Um, not just like you just mentioned the piece of cinema that it is. It's so amazing. Mm. It's like no other piece of film. And I, I really love Charlie Kaufman's stuff and yeah. um, Michelle Gondry. And yeah, just when it came out, it was like so mind blowing. Um, yeah. I also saw it at the at the movies with a friend and I was going through like a break <laughs> with my uh, boy, ex-boyfriend now yeah. um, and he was a very, it was a very toxic relationship and well, I ended up going back with him and, you know, we always regret it. So It happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, but, yeah, I remember walking out of the movie being like uh, feeling really doomed in a relationship mm. sense, even though I loved it. I was like, oh, there's like no hope. So I think I've changed my tune since then after watching it. Mm. But yeah, it made I just, an impact I think on it's, me. I think it's so interesting that you went to go see it in the movies. I was eight when the movie came out, <laughs> by the way. I, so it's showing my this, age, Indy. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's awesome. But yeah, I, I first saw this movie when I was in high school. So It transcends age. <laughs> mm, it does. It is very timeless. Awesome. Well, let's get stuck into the plot. So the film opens up with Joel having had his memory erased uh we don't know that at the time though um he skips work to go to montauk they're obviously in uh, new york state he meets clementine and then spends the next day at a frozen lake together clearly falling in love that's a very short version of that after the credits we meet joel again having had clementine break up with him he's about to have the lacuna experience which we're not sure what that is yet He takes a pill, falls asleep, and then the Lacuna team comes to eliminate his memories. We experience the movie as Joel reliving his memories one by one while he's asleep before they get zapped and eliminated from his brain. We learn through his memories that Clementine has erased his memories of him after they broke up. He's not supposed to know this, but his best friend lets him know when he tries to get her back, but she doesn't appear to recognize him and is with some new guy called Patrick. He then discovers what Lacuna does. They let him know that Clementine wasn't happy and wanted to move on. So she decided to do the procedure to eliminate her memories of Joel. So he decides he wants to do the procedure as well and erase his mind of Clementine. We start watching him experience his memory as he's reliving them and then and then disappear, which in itself is a very confusing but marvellous cinematic experience. Meanwhile, as this is happening, the team working on him have their own dramas. Patrick is part of the team and helped erase Clementine's mind and is now dating her. He's also a super creepy guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clementine starts freaking out without knowing why, because she's had her memory erased. Uh, We learn that Patrick has been taking cues from both Clementine and Joel to tune Clementine. And then we also see Stan, one of the Lacuna members, his girlfriend, Mary. She comes over, who also works in the Lacuna clinic. And she clearly has a thing for Howard, who is the creator of Lacuna. We go back to Joel. After going through some negative memories of Clementine, he starts to go through some more positive ones and then decides he doesn't want to stop the memory erasing procedure. He tries to stop the process and hold on to the memories and hold on to Clementine and decides to try taking her to memories that she doesn't belong in. The process then stops and a stoned Stan and Mary freak out and call Howard, who comes over to fix it up. As Joel continues to try to battle the procedure, going to memories that were already erased, and then taking Clementine to somewhere very buried in humiliation or shame. Despite everything, he can't stop the process, but Clementine does tell him in his mind to meet him in Montauk. 
Well, Howard takes over to continue the process of elimination of the memories, Mary makes a pass at Howard and tells him that she has been in love with him this whole time. When his wife shows up to see them kissing, she tells Mary that they were together once. Mary then finds her own lacuna file, as she's had the procedure done too. And here's her tape where it seems Howard convinced her to do the procedure. The next morning, Mary has quit and has decided to send everyone's file back to them. As Clementine and Joel have reconnected inadvertently, Clementine receives her file just as she gets back in Joel's car. Despite both of them discovering they had been in a relationship with each other and wiped each other's brains of memories of each other, and knowing they're likely to repeat the same mistakes, they still decide to give it another go. That's the plot. <laughs> I, that, <laughs> a very convoluted plot. It's so convoluted. it's like a non-linear way of telling the story through the film, and I think that's part of what makes it such a beautiful cinematic piece of work and that's probably why because I saw it first in like year 11 or 12 media studies and then I watched it again when I was in media studies in uni as well so like I was watching it for these film studies purposes and falling in love because it was a good example of really really good storytelling Mm -hmm. from a like film perspective as well and that's why it's so critically acclaimed you get mixed reviews on it because there's some people who like I love this movie and then some people who don't love it for this exact reason and personally I think it's a really great way to tell a story because it has this like level of depth that you can explore like completely like unparalleled to any other movie that you can get like of a similar genre yeah um and I also think that the casting was just a really and a fun fact I don't know if this is in your notes the director had asked Jim Carrey to hold on to heartbreak that he had experienced heartbreak four years prior and the um because he was like I really want you to be in this movie and so he was like, you've just gone through a breakup. I really want you to hold on to this feeling. So apparently Jim Carrey quite literally held on to the memories and like journaled the memories of his heartbreak so that he could relive that experience whilst he was acting as Joel. Amazing. No, I didn't know mm. that. Yeah. I love that. And it is such genius casting because um, Jim Carrey, I don't think at that point he was known for anything other than his comedic mm-hmm. roles and just yeah. outrageousness. And it's just such an against type character, but he does it extremely well. And I love Kate Winslet. She's everything she she's in. I really love. So yeah. that's a no brainer. And not, like, I think you're right about how convoluted it is um, and how that might not be desirable for some people, but it also, the way it starts from the beginning of the relationship, but then the relationship has already begun again. You yeah. see it a bit more, it, it affects you more because you are like your Joel and not, not realizing mm-hmm. this has all happened before. And it's also kind of that memory as well, like going back to the past and coming back to the future. It sort of gives you that feeling of, of like deja vu. So yeah, 100%. yeah, I love it. So should we start talking about lived experience of the characters and the creators of the film? Absolutely. Awesome. So Charlie Kaufman, I could read about Charlie Kaufman for so long. There's so many articles. There's so much to be said about him. You obviously have read a lot as well. Is there anything that struck you about his life or where he's come from in making this movie? The only thing that sticks to me is him specifically asking Jim Carrey to be like, I need you to stay heartbroken for the next four (laughs) years whilst I work on this movie. (laughs) Because that was like, I read that um, 
when I was doing like uni work for it and I was like, holy shit, like that's an intense thing for Jim Carrey to have taken on considering. Um, but I guess he was willing to do it for the role because I think he, he that was the thing was he really wanted to be in something that had would show a different side of who he is as an actor. And so that's why he had chosen to take on this role as well. Which is a really good choice. And it also mm. shows how Charlie's so like he's very method in how he does mm. things, but also that an, an idea can take years and years and it'll stick with it until it becomes yeah. to completion. And obviously that's a long process and a lot to ask for an actor, um, but it obviously worked. <laughs> and reading, like if you've, if you've seen adaptation, uh, like the character in adaptation, he's basically uh, playing himself played by Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage and Nicolas Cage is very good in it. So even if you go back to adaptation, you can you can see that Charlie Kaufman is a very self-confessed, anxious, depressive person generally and has a lot of pressure on himself, social anxiety in dealing with his craft and with people around him. Adaptation came from the fact that he uh was trying to adapt a book called The Orchid Thief and went through what he called an overwhelming depression because he was struggling Mm. to do so. And then out of it came the screenplay for Adaptation, which basically is about trying to adapt a book and making it being hard. So, again, very meta. But clearly it's you don't have to dig too deep to to realise Charlie Kaufman has quite some significant mental health issues. Synecdoche, New York, have you seen that one? I have not seen it. I have heard of the play. I I also believe it's pronounced Schenectady. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. That's okay. Similar premise in that it's a director trying to create his masterpiece and it becoming bigger than Ben-Hur and it all being about Mm. his life and then there being a movie within the movie. So there's a lot of self-deprecation and some some real self-consciousness in how he creates because he, like in a lot of the articles I read, he just seems so down on himself and so negative about himself. Mm. But clearly he's some sort of genius because he makes amazing films and writes amazing screenplays. But yeah, he's like, he's so self-conscious about being so self-indulgent that he makes movies to be open about how he is Mm. self-indulgent and narcissistic to kind of counteract the fact that he is like this to be like, yeah, I'm self-indulgent, but I want to show you that I hate this, like showing off. Yeah, I find him a really interesting person. He really struggled during the pandemic as well, as we all did. But um, Yeah. yeah, there's a lot going in Charlie Kaufman's head. As for Michelle Gondry, I found less about his mental health or anything like that. He seems to be a bit more of a positive dude, but uh, he did say that when he, in an article in The Guardian, he said that um, when he was six, he, he panicked, or since he was six, he panicked about infinity, the sun, the stars, all that. I thought if you were dead, you had reached the end of time. As well as being plagued by existential terror, he also has an innocent side. Um, and I relate to that because that's one of the things I get lots of anxiety about is infinity <laughs> and the mm. end of time. It, yeah, I just found that interesting. That was really the only thing I found. But, yeah, it shows that, you know, Michelle has a little bit of insight into that feeling of anxiety. But other than that, I just looked into Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. And Jim Carrey is an interesting fellow. Mm-hmm. Um there is an article that says, uh, I didn't find too many that, that back this up, but it says that he has ADHD um, and has had a long experience with depression, which I found a lot more information for. But having said that, he's got some complicated views on 
medication. He went off Prozac because he thought we shouldn't go on medication long term, which I have problems with. Um, and he's a big anti-vaxxer, thanks to his wife, Jenny McCarthy. They've since uh, broken up. She's a big anti-vaxxer. Mm. She created a lot of that. So he's still on that bullshit. So it makes me <laughs> somewhat concerned, um, even though he's had that experience, he's not necessarily got the, um, the right idea around promoting mental health awareness and things like that. I know that he's like got this side of him, like he just does a lot of art and like, like he locks himself away mm. for hours and days on end and just like creates a lot of art. And I think that like, He's talked a lot about his relationship with his daughter and how he feels like she's kind of the only one who really understands him. And, like, this is not verbatim, so, like, don't quote me on this, but, like, he's talked a lot about having a, a relationship with his daughter that I guess you could say feels kind of codependent or, mm. in a sense, like, he has a relationship with her that is... um. You know, and I think that happens when you have, a, like, a mentally ill parent and I guess she might have taken on a caregiver role in his yeah, life. And yeah, for sure. Given, like, context around Jim Carrey, it's it's easy to understand how he might have been persuaded by, for example, Jenny McCarthy in this instance where she's, become like, kind of persuaded him or, like, informed him incorrectly and he's like, oh, yeah, that sounds right when it comes to, like, vaccine, vaccines and stuff like that. Um, I think it's hard because, you know, just because you're in the public eye doesn't mean that you have the correct way to kind of advocate for people who have mental health issues yeah regardless exactly. of whether or not you portray them so absolutely yeah. true yeah um and like the last update I read was that he's very into transcendental meditation and if that mm. works for his mental health issues that's awesome um on red carpets and stuff he's he will talk about how we don't exist you know we're not here so he's very philosophical in in prom mm. promoting his sort of uh way of thinking which a lot of people have interpreted as what's going on with jim carrey he's gone a little bit weird yeah. um but again like he's a hugely prolific actor uh he's not always going to have the right things to say on the red carpet Kate Winslet uh, didn't find too much about mental health or ex or lived experience apart from the fact that um, she's she went through a lot of issues with body image and experienced a lot of diet culture. Mm. Given that she's an actress in Hollywood, like who hasn't? Mm. Um, but she's definitely had a lot more media attention because she wasn't always the the you know stick thin Hollywood actress. Which is mm, especially of... given the time frame of her like peak fame. Exactly. Because she's one of the famous Kates, and because she's not as skinny as Kate Moss, of course, it's going to be compared to Kate Moss. Exactly. Well, like the tabloid times, and you know, we've talked on Hot Girl Theory uh, to no end um, about how damaging yet addictive tabloids are, especially in the mm. early 2000s. And I think that's really when the height of her like criticism towards her body was because I even remember it as mm. a child and being like and you know this discourse around like Kate Winslet was seen as fat like she was seen as a fat actress you know what I mean and like how yeah. weird that is to think about yeah and she, like at the same time as being one of the you know most popular loved act mm. actresses also being seen as the fat actress yeah it's just bizarre um and one of the things I love about Kate Winslet is she's very willing to be quite vulnerable and open about those things. Have you seen Mayor of East Town? Which is I have not. <laughs> another one you should see. Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> She's amazing in that and she really um promoted wanting to just look herself on that show and not when they um 
submitted like a poster they'd airbrushed her and she's they're like take those airbrushings out I want to look like myself because this is me stop cutting away flabby bits of my body and things Mm. like that so she's definitely trying to subvert that Hollywood culture also she said that she's open with the fact that she has stress incontinence um which is where you know if you sneeze you wee a little bit most people who've had kids often have this Uh, that's a very short shorthand way of describing it but the fact that she'll talk about it is pretty awesome Uh, because not many actresses are willing to share things like that yeah go Kate I won't go into Kirsten Dunst. I'm pretty sure we've talked about her on the podcast before, but she definitely has had a quite significant experience with depression in her life. Yeah, and she just got married to Jesse Plemons, which makes me happy. (laughs) Shall we start with talking about the accuracy of what we do see depicted in the film? Sounds good. So on first glance, Indy, when you first see Joel, like if you were to give him a mental health diagnosis, what would you give him? Mm. having yes. having See, complete experience in clinical psychology <laughs> complete ex- well okay having experience being in a relationship with someone who <laughs> gave me Joel vibes at yes. least when we were in a relationship um there definitely would be some like especially undiagnosed issues with um anxiety and maybe like some kind of depression but definitely like a lot it's the self-loathing because yeah. I feel like a lot of people will lump self-loathing in with depression. I think you can like probably feel like he's probably a lot more anxious than he is depressed. Yeah. Um, I definitely think the neurodivergence um, can be applied to him as well, whether, whether or not that's like autism or ADHD, like is kind of hard to say given what we're given in the film. But Mm. um, I also think when you explore his past within his, um, because a lot of, the themes within the film are quite eatable as well. So you've yes. got a lot of like mummy issues yes. with Joel and then you've got a lot of daddy issues with Mary. Yes. So when it comes to Joel, I think like there might be some like kind of underlying trauma that's unsaid that is definitely going unnoticed or unspoken of mm. uh, that is definitely impacting his ability to, I guess, like perceive clementine or any woman in his life really as like a whole human being yes (laughs) you know what i mean so that that's like whilst i can't specifically diagnose him i think there's like trauma issues anxiety issues potential neurodivergence and then just like perspective issues if that makes sense yeah definitely I completely agree. Like, like I think particularly the mummy issues, like Mm. it's mentioned quite a bit in the film in that. um, And and when we go back to his childhood that he was a – I would even diagnose some separation anxiety there with mum. That's a little bit beyond what you normally see in kids in, you know, the brief scene that we saw, you know, she's not looking at me, she's going to leave. And even like his best friend says he's not Mama Carrie's kid or something like Mm. that. So it showed that that obviously he grew up being the clingy son, perhaps looking for that person in his life who sort of is seen as that mother figure of that unattainable um quirky sort of manic pixie dream girl like essentially like he wants that manic pixie dream girl to to bring him out of his shell and and to make him have the joyful life that he struggles with rather than having to sort of do the work himself to Mm -hmm. um improve his anxiety and and cope better with with the ups and downs of life and I relate so many um guys in my life to to Joel (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, won't name names. Um, but he's very avoidant. He runs away from mm. problems. He doesn't face them. He doesn't like to communicate. Anytime you see them have an argument, he sort of just says sorry and just wants to go back. He just wants doesn't want to deal with what has been said and just wants to go back yeah. to I feel like it's also contrasted with like he will say very like mean and inflammatory things, especially yes. to Clementine regarding like her. And obviously we'll get into it later with like him having expectations of her that kind of feel outside the realm of just being in a relationship with someone. Mm. But he'll be very, very, very mean. Yes. Like extraordinarily mean. And then when she kind of is upset, rightfully so, he's kind of like, well, why? Like kind of giving that like classic boy like well you don't get to be upset at what I said it's true kind of thing you know what yeah. I mean and and you're and just I being out your you know reaction is outrageous so. yeah 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 that's totally he's self-deprecating and he hates himself but he's also quite uh arrogant in his yeah. beliefs and what he what he thinks yep. people what he expects of other people like you say yeah. um and doesn't know how to regulate himself or let alone other people so it's a it's a tricky dynamic for someone like Clementine to be in, um, but at the same time, like they can com- complement each other in that way because he's sort of more the flight threat response, and she's the fight <laughs> threat response. Yeah. If you if you use those terms, um, you'd, you'd even like suggest one of the articles that I read suggested he has avoidant personality disorder. Um, I didn't go through the DSM criteria, but when you do break it down taking away like the symptoms of anxiety and the symptoms of depression it could it, he could even we've we've only got this film to look at but there could be a case for a personality disorder presenting itself as well very different from what we su- suggest that clementine has but i yeah i agree that um neurodivergence could be something going on as well in terms of yeah how we see him presented he's very very insular very introverted he's um you know struggles with eye contact and and social cues and things like that and knowing what to do in a situation um likes things the way he likes them and things like that Mm. so should we talk about clementine yes pretty much every article i've read suggests that she has borderline personality disorder what do you think indy before i go into (laughs) okay this this makes me roll my eyes because (laughs) i like yeah i definitely think that clementine could be read as a character who has borderline personality disorder or coded to be such Mm. a way um but i think from my personal perspective, obviously projecting a little bit onto Clementine here, as someone who relates to her character basically in every single aspect, and I don't have BPD myself, I also think there's like validity in just seeing her as a character that is beyond the BPD scope. Mm. Because I think when films are kind of like, there's no explicit diagnosis and there's like kind of just like lots of implication, it can kind of make a lot of reductionist assumptions about people rather than seeing them as like complex human beings. Yes, I totally agree. complex emotional tendencies, yeah. Mm. And so I think it's kind of this exact point that because we see Clementine specifically from Joel's perspective throughout the whole entire film, this to me is suggesting that because he's wanting to see her as someone who is, as you said, that manic pixie dream girl trope, she's therefore exhibiting the symptoms of BPD. And that's potentially just this way of Joel seeing her and this very restrictive way of Joel seeing her. Mm -hmm. So that's why I personally don't think that she has BPD. Um, And I also think that it's really important to point out that at the start of the film, Clementine is also 
juxtaposed to Naomi in his head and because yes. it's not really mentioned in the plot. Naomi was like the woman that Joel was living with in a long-term relationship or at least it seems like it was a long-term relationship. Yeah, there was no like specific... discussions of them being like, engaged. and yeah. yeah, it was just that they lived together. It's really hard to say but, um, you know, at the start when he first meets Clementine and he becomes kind of infatuated with her, he's considering getting back in a relationship with Naomi mm. um, and whilst we aren't given a lot of context for their relationship uh you know Naomi was nice and she was good and she loved Joel and like those were all of the good things about Naomi Mm -hmm. but somehow like that still wasn't enough for him even though like it seemed like she totally could have fit the mummy type he was going for it still wasn't enough so Clementine was very clearly the opposite of Naomi and I think that this is also a huge part of what draws Joel to her though he still sees Clem as a very one-dimensional person who he happens to judge a lot because of that fact. 100%. Like, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, when you when you sort of break down what Joel has seen um, of her, you could definitely mm. argue that she has borderline personality disorder. But you have to remember that most of what we see is through Joel's eyes. It's through his gaze. Yeah. Um, and present-day Clementine has also just gone through the procedure. So even if what we're seeing is accurate, from what we saw at the end of the film, she's going through a lot. She's mm. been um, going through a memory-erasing experience. She's having creepy guy Patrick do just weird fucking shit. She's not her best self as well. Mm. And we've all gone through days where we're a little bit erratic, etc. Um, doesn't necessarily uh, mean we're like that all the time. And that's when we, that's the most that we see Clementine when they aren't um, in Joel's head, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I will go through the borderline personality criteria because it's always a little bit fun to do. Yeah. Um, the borderline criteria, you have to meet fi- at least five out of nine of the DSM criteria. Um, in the DSM-5. So the first one is making frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. And I guess the biggest evidence for this I can see is when she first meets him in his memory and she says, I'm high maintenance. If you're with me, you're with me. So she's very upfront and, you know, wants what she wants. The thing is, I wouldn't even call that a frantic effort. No, I don't think that's frantic at all. Blunt and being like, (laughs) You know, this is her setting down the groundwork of like, this is what I expect in a relationship. And I think if anything, that's like totally opposite of someone having BPD, because I think a lot of and this is me speaking from personal experience with my friends who have BPD and who are diagnosed. A lot of the time, their version of making frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment is to like lie and not in a malicious way, but to make themselves wanted by the other person. They'll change who they are and change their personality and kind of in this way like subconsciously manipulate the other person into thinking they're someone else yeah instead of being like totally upfront about who they are I think this to me reads as someone who's perfectly mentally stable (laughs) (laughs) and you know I was trying to scramble for evidence for this because I I agree I don't think there's anything here that doesn't suggest that suggests that she's trying desperately Mm. to hold on to Joel in fact she breaks up with him um, yeah, she also erases his memory, her memory of him. The only other thing I could think of is when they meet each other the second time, and she and he's like, "Oh, I've got to write my my in my journal," and she punches him on the arm and is like, "Take care, man." Which you could interpret that as a rejection response of that quite aggressive punch on the arm. But again, mm. I just think that's her being Clem. Yeah, I <laughs> I think the fact that she states very clearly, "This is what you need to be if you want to be in a relationship with me," shows quite healthy relationship. Yeah. 
The second criteria is having a pattern of unstable relationships, often characterized by idealizing or devaluing a person, also known as black and white uh, thinking or splitting. I don't think we see a whole lot of her um, idealizing Joel. Um, she does like him pretty quickly on the train the second time around, but again, there's that residual memory effect perhaps happening. Yes. Mm. And you could see the black and white splitting as maybe the fact that she wants to erase Joel. But also that doesn't necessarily mean that's what she was doing. The third one is struggling with unstable self-image or identity. I think what people probably hold on to the most of the BPD suggestion is the fact that she changes her hair all the time. Which pisses me off. Like, again, as someone who, like, I know I have brown hair now, but, like, I have gone through every colour of the rainbow. And I literally have a whole spiel on her hair if you would like me to go into it. It's now the time because I'd definitely love to hear. If you'd like, shall we transition to my spiel on her hair? Let's do it. Okay. Clementine's hair. So this is, okay, again, again, prefacing here. I'm a film nerd. I watched this film for the first time because I was watching it in a film studies context so obviously when you're doing film studies you look at symbolism something that I think is really important to note is that Clem's hair is symbolism in the film and it's not just this indication of like wow she's crazy I mean like obviously it is but you know even down to the names of the hair dye Mm -hmm. are symbolic Um, and the importance of the colors matter because outside of just being attributed to the classic ideal of what a like mentally unstable young woman should look like the hair is also symbolic of broader mood shifts to the relationship Yes. And also helps situate the audience within the narrative of the film because yes. it is non-linear. So, so we know when changes... she's got blue hair, that's this part yes. of their relationship, etc. Yeah, totally. Yes. So ultimately the changes to Clementine's hair offer profound depth, but also metaphoric symbolism. So the first hair colour chronologically in their relationship is actually green. So this is representative of springtime, you know, Joel and Clem's you know, first meeting, representing new beginnings, a fresh start, that kind of vibe. When Joel also seems to start like kind of desiring her and then we kind of turn into summer, which is when her hair turns to red. So we've got relationship is now in full gear. Red is also the colour of love and passion and that's kind of the tone of their relationship. And you even notice that the the specific memory where he wants to, he realizes that he wants to keep his memories of Clementine is when she had her red hair. Mm. It's like the best part of the relationship is when he was doing all of his drawings of her and things like that as well. Yeah. Then you have this mood shift to autumn when her hair was orange. So it's obviously faded red. It's kind of this fall dying passion kind of vibe. Then we move into winter, which is her hair is now blue mm-hmm. and this is symbolizing the end of their relationship or the death of their relationship. Although this is technically not the end of their relationship, you can also see a significant regrowth Mm. with her hair, Mm -hmm. allowing like a little bit of green to come through, like when it kind of shifts in color. And this kind of, this kind of signifies that there's potential renewal and potential for more to grow once again. And you'd assume that they'd be the exact like same thing. Like you'd assume that they'd be back at the exact same spot considering the lack of memory. But as you said, there's like this residual memory there. Like why else would Joel like spontaneously go to Montauk when he says, I'm not a spontaneous person? It's because there's like this untold thing in his mind going, oh, you need to do this. Mm. And the hair is representing the, you know, cyclical patterns of their relationship. And so there's this idea that it's going to start again and she's going to do those same colours again. Or maybe she'll do completely different colours. Yeah. 
We have no idea. But that's my little spiel on her hair. I love it. <laughs> it's so – I had not thought of the colours that way in signifying mm. the beginning, the, the middle, the end of the relationship, and it makes so much sense. Um, yeah. And putting it into that context too, like it's a masterwork of film and then interpreting it as, you know, she's just wacky. Yeah, because like <laughs> makes they could have just silly. done – Something easier for them to to do would have been like a uh, like a haircut, and yeah. usually when there's like temporal changes in a narrative, it will be a haircut or a, some kind of like hairstyle change that shows oh this is a different timeline. Yeah. But for them to choose hair color also allows for that symbolism of the color to represent the tone of their relationship totally. and the potential for that pattern to repeat itself or be different with new colors altogether. I feel like it's also a very good like cinematograph cinematographical. <laughs> You know what I'm trying to say. It's um, good mise-en-scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, the way it looks on camera, you know, yeah. paired with the, the snowy scenes and, and all the, yeah, the colour grade as well. She does say a few things that people could suggest is that sort of that unstable self-image. <laughs> so as despite I, me completely agreeing with you, she does say, like, I, I apply my personality in a paste when oh. she... <laughs> Again, but, which I'm is a like joke. Same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, the some of the things Joel says is, you know, where's the real Clementine? But, again, that's what Joel's saying. That's what he's imposing mm-hmm. onto her. Uh, I love her. I'm not a concept. I'm just a fucked up girl looking for my own peace of mind. Like, I love that mm-hmm. line. You could interpret that as, you know, I'm a fucked up looking for my own peace of mind, not, not sort of knowing where I am. Or, But, you know, I've felt like a fucked up girl <laughs> many times and I haven't been diagnosed with BPD. And also that she says she's not going to tell from one moment to the next what I'm going to like. But again, that doesn't necessarily suggest self-image or a a difficulty with knowing who she is. I feel like she knows who she is pretty well, to be honest. 100%. And this is why I'm like so strong in this opinion, because I do 100% relate to content. And I know that I'm going to sound like a broken record on that, but I have a very strong personality and I have said outrageous things before because (laughs) I'm either trying to get a response out of something someone or like I just don't always know how to get the mood right with people Mm -hmm. like especially if I'm feeling uncomfortable I'll just say like and this is something that I get from my mom as well who has similar personality traits like that like if you're uncomfortable you just might say something that's also uncomfortable to like shift the tone yeah break it up yeah yeah so I just I just don't I think it's a bit of a it's an oversimplification to be like oh that's BPD you know what I mean yeah exactly you know if you looked at the textbook if you were going to diagnose with someone with BPD you it's a lot more nuanced than just looking at the criteria and saying, well, she said that, that's it. It's <laughs> yeah. obviously that's not what it's we like would do. It's like a full on like brain scan thing. <laughs> yeah. um, the other criteria, number four, is engaging in risky or impulsive behavior. She says she's impulsive in Joel's mind. As we're seeing through Joel's eyes, there's this impression that she drinks to excess or when she drinks, mm-hmm. she gets silly she does, she does crash his car supposedly while she was drunk, but again, Joel's memory. Um, but I don't think there's enough of a case of that she does anything risky to the point of putting herself in any real danger that we see in the film anyway. Um, just in comparison to what Joel would do, it seems risky and impulsive because he's yeah. the opposite, complete opposite of that. Like w- walking across a very frozen river is impulsive and 
dangerous I, to him. I also think there's like parts of him that are trying to find reasons to have like an issue with yes. Clementine's behavior. And yes. that's like, he, I, that's what I mean by like he's inflammatory. And I think he's inflammatory on purpose because he's wanting to find a reason to kind of uh, like he want like, and this is again, very reminiscent of the relationship that I was in where he would always be on my ass about something that had nothing to do with him or like just little things. And, he, and until we were fighting and like really quite explosive, hurtful things would happen. And I think that's um, more so about him wanting mm. to find turbulence in the relationship because he can't find anything to fault her with. So he has to kind of manifest them. And I think because she's very opposite to him, mm. she he's trying to justify her way of doing things as being wrong. So yeah. because it's not, it takes him out of his comfort zone. And she, yes. obviously to be in a relationship with her means sometimes going out of your comfort zone to meet someone in the middle. So he's trying mm. to justify why he doesn't want to do that by saying what you're doing is is wrong and irrational. Other criteria, number five is having frequent suicidal thoughts or engaging in self-harm. No evidence of that. Um, Number six is experiencing periods of emotional intensity or frequent rapid mood swings. I feel like on the train in the beginning, we're supposed to think she's, she'll go up and down quite regularly. And we are interpreting it from Joel as she's a bit intense. But again, through Joel's eyes and also after the, quite a significant procedure. Maybe she's just a water sign. That's all <laughs> I gotta say. But, you know, I'm a Cancer. She could be a Scorpio. I don't know. I get those vibes from her. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I don't know astrology. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but That's I'm an fine. Aries, if that helps. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like her emotions are pretty um, justifiable most of the time, mm. to be honest. The other one is having chronic feelings of emptiness. Again, I don't really see any evidence of her feeling empty. Like I don't think she needs a man in her life to be mm. feel fulfilled. Number eight, living with intense or uncontrollable anger. Uh, again, I think that any emotions that we see are through Joel's perspective and I don't think it's really out of um, an irrational place that we see. And lastly, dissociating or having an out-of-body or disconnected from yourself type feeling which again, we don't have any evidence of that. So when we look at all those uh, criteria, she doesn't really meet it. Yeah. Even looking at it from Joel's perspective. Yeah. And I think all of the things that uh, would potentially meet the criteria is because of Joel's perspective of her and his like narrow one dimensional, one dimensional view instead mm-hmm. of looking at her from like a complex perspective of like, Oh, you just have like a broad range of emotions that I'm not comfortable with. And I don't know how to deal with that. Instead of keeping that to myself, I'm going to project that onto you and make you feel like a piece of fucking shit. Yeah. Yeah. And make you, it's very much that Davo tactic too, that deny attack reverse yeah. uh, <laughs> victim blame. And then, I can't remember what O stands for, but put the issue onto you and make you feel like you're the crazy person. Yeah. Um, do you think she would meet any other criteria based if she was uh, diagnosed with anything? Like I can, uh, and I can see this in your notes. Like I can definitely agree <laughs> that she would potentially have ADHD. Like I think that as someone who does have ADHD myself, and again, I'm not projecting, although I am. Like you know, this I'm idea. Constantly like, projecting I, in these films, so it's all fine. This, yeah, that's true. Like it, even back to um, your Clueless episode, which was specifically about ADHD and shirt. Like I, I think because ADHD isn't something that's explored in women a lot, it's about the coding of these characters. Yes. And I think that her erratic behavior, her intensity, these kinds of things that Joel is perceiving to be like the BPD 
is actually potentially ADHD. Um, she could have some issues with anxiety or have had struggle. I could see her having struggled with depression potentially in the past, but I think that it's because of these like strong personality factors of her like knowing who she is, knowing what she wants, feeling a very certain type of way about Joel and kind of just like having this go for it attitude. I think that that shows having experienced trauma, depression, like having, you know, once you've gone through those like life hardships, you come out of it the other side with a stronger personality. Totally. Again, speaking from experience and projecting onto this character. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like we only see Clementine for for one period of her life and mostly yes. through the eyes of someone else. So we, we don't really know anything about her past. We don't know uh, apart from the fact. Like literally nothing. Yeah, we don't know any family members apart from the fact that she works in Barnes & Noble, have no yeah. idea where she I, came from. I was going to say, I think that's like the, the longest standing fact we know about it, that she's worked there for like five years or something. It was yeah. like that. Um, like a ridiculous amount of time to work in a bookstore. <laughs> uh, Which like also proves, okay, this is just a total tangent. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that also proves that she's so well read. And then yeah. there's this moment in the, in the movie where like, he, where Joel is basically saying, and it's on the tape where he's saying like, she's not smart mm. and like saying, and again, totally relatable. Like this idea of, of her she's probably like super duper duper smart in like a women having ADHD way yeah. where like he can't comprehend it because it's not stereotypically like book smart whereas she's probably like way more street smart exactly, and has yeah. more ability to like contemplate the universe for example whereas Joel just seems like very straight and narrow like x times y equals z and things like that so exactly, I think yeah. it's very interesting I feel like <laughs> She looks like she could have ADHD. Again, we wouldn't mm. have enough to diagnose. Um, but some of the fact that she, um, of what she does say in that she's talked about, you know, wasting time makes her feel anxious mm. as well. Like she wants to yeah. take as much of life as possible. Um, she does say at the end, like, I'll get bored and feel trapped because that's what happens with me. Yes. She must have yes. a high need to um, engage with stimulation and that, that serotonin <sighs> <Relatable>. increase. <laughs> Um, and I feel like sometimes there is parallels between BPD and ADHD and other things in ADHD. And that's why it's probably so underdiagnosed in girls. Yes. So at the moment, thank goodness. Yeah. Neurodivergence in women is often misdiagnosed as bipolar and BPD. Yeah. It's so misdiagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? Interestingly, most articles I read were like, yeah, she's definitely got BPD. This is why. And As you can tell, I'm very like strongly. <laughs> I feel very strongly about that. And a lot of um, people who have seen the movie and relate to her or have BPD um, relate mm. to her. And even yeah. though we disagree with the the diagnosis as a whole. Um, at least from what we're presented. If people relate to her and they find it a positive way, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, 100%. Anything else we want to talk about around this topic before we move on? My main point here is about talking about Joel's expectations of Clementine. Yeah. And throughout their relationship, which mostly go unsaid. And I think that's part of the problem is he has all of these expectations on of her that he doesn't communicate and mm. so when she kind of diverges from that she he's he just blows up at her yeah and yeah so it's like a major issue she fails to live up to these inhuman arguably expectations and he disappoints him like he gets disappointed and then he retaliates in those toxic ways yes and i think it's at that point in the film that we can really see clem fully divert and this is like from the manic pixie dream girl thing i think she diverges herself from the manic pixie dream girl trope through things saying like, you know, I'm just a fucked up girl looking for my own peace of mind. Like she 
is not a one note person and no. she's making that known to Joel. Very clear from and, the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she, I feel like it's because the Manic Pixie Dream Girl wouldn't fail those expectations that Joel would set that he's searching for that. Yes. And that trope really only serves male characters and, you know, denies the woman's needs, feelings, thoughts, desires in the dynamic. And then, as I said, they end up feel like being viewed as one dimensionally rather than this like nuanced human being, which is not the case for Clementine. No. Clementine literally breaks the fourth wall on that Manic Pixie Dream Girl concept. As I said, like she explicitly, through explicitly telling Joel, I'm not the girl that you're trying to make me out to be. And if you want to be with me, you're going to be with me. Yeah. Yeah. She says like, um, so many guys think I complete them or I'm yes. going to enhance their life or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, mm. it's exactly that, that like, line as well that I love so much and just, like, gives me chills because I'm like, fuck yes, like, yeah. totally go off. But um, it's interesting that she kind of reiterates that again to him even after the memories have been wiped because it's she's coming back to this feeling of, like, even though Joel is definitely approaching things differently, which is, I think, an interesting um, shift in the film. Like, it's showing that he has obviously still learned from his relationship despite having had his memories wiped. Mm that she's still like, I'm going to tell you up front. And I think that that's kind of more so a point towards her personality rather than her responding to Joel. I, I yes. think she would say that to anyone, yes, not 100%. specifically just Joel. Yeah. I also think Clementine diverges from traditional femininity mm. and embodies a lot of masculine energy. She's a hothead. She's loud. She's vibrant. She's not meek. She's not quiet. She's not a demure woman. Mm. So Joel is expecting her to be all of these really traditionally feminine things. So when Clem comes in here with her hypersexuality and her desire to drink alcohol, like he just can't handle it. Yeah, he doesn't and know then, what to do. Yeah, and then Joel using that against her to slut shame her, mm. which is something I've also had happen in my past relationship as well. It like sucks to be in that position because like men will love that you're experienced. They'll love that you know what to do. They'll love that you like know how to please them or mm-hmm. know how to be pleased yourself. But then the, the cool moment girl. that you're, rem- yeah, you're, the moment you remind them that you have had sex with other people, suddenly you're like the dirty tainted slut. And yeah. you know, that it's just basically being a human fucking being. And this is where also back to the Oedipal, like, mm-hmm. you know, influences on the film. Joel clearly has like a, a Madonna whore complex. Yes. And he's projecting that onto Clementine. No, it's so true. And I think what we see from him erasing his memory and as he goes through the memories is he just sees her as this manic pixie dream girl. Like, when they first meet each other at the beach, she's a bit more subdued than than what you see in the train later on in Montauk. Yeah, like in the, the technically the second time they meet for the first time, it's yeah. like she's way more like intense, and he's way more like whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he's clearly looking for that person who is you know a bit unique and and it sort of understands how they connect because they don't know what to do at these sort of social gatherings because they're both a little bit out of outside of their usual social norm in different ways which is Mm. often how people meet but he sort of clings on to her because he's already got that idealized view of her as the person who's he's not going to have to do anything she's going to do all the work of the intimacy but she'll never meet that expectation as you just said and then when Mm. we start seeing the memories we sort of go towards the things the way that she didn't meet those expectations and then we see how he early on in their relationship how she already had pegged him and she even says it as you know her memory self like I had you pegged 
you knew that you wanted me to be that person and I, well, I'm not that person. I'm not that one-dimensional person. And essentially that seems to be how the relationship started to fail. And it, you almost, you can see him through the memories start to realise that within himself. So I feel like the end of the film is sort of him knowing what he has to do to keep this person in his life who has value and is an awesome, well-rounded person to go through the mm. second time, even though it doesn't remember it. Well, I think that's uh, like, because I like, there's a lot of um, influence of on relationships and dating in my podcast. We talk a lot about like how, when you look at a relationship and you reflect on that relationship as a past relationship, you've got this very specific prism in which you're looking at it from. It's from the end to the beginning, not the beginning to the end. So he's kind of looking at his memories before he goes into the like dream sleep moment and he's actively living those memories. I'm talking about like when he's depressed about it up until that point where he decides to undergo the procedure, you know, he's like mad at her for doing that to him and then looking at his relationship and going, yeah, fuck her, fuck her. Like these are all the problems in our relationship. She was a slut, she drank, blah, blah, blah. And um, that's, I think, such a toxic way to look at your relationship because and part of the reason that Ash and I did the X-Files, which is our series on X's, is so that we could look at our relationship. Oh, not- I thought you meant the actual show, the X-Files. No, we, 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 <laughs> did the, it, we titled it the X-Files as a play on nice. the actual X-Files awesome. um, <laughs> because pop culture is amazing. But yeah, yeah. so <laughs> we kind of wanted to actively look at our relationship from every angle and reflect and go, yeah, like they were fucked up and I was fucked up, but our relationship was also good and I learned a lot of yeah. things outside of those negative still moments. Value in it. It's not always negative. And that's that's kind of the main thing is like if you can take something positive from a really negative fucked up thing, especially if it lasted for two and a half years of your life or more, why not take something positive from that? And so I think that's what's good about the end of the film is I think even though Joel has lost his memories, he does, I think at the end of the day, still love Clementine on some level, even yeah, though he doesn't actually sure. know her. And that's why he got on that train to Montauk and that's why he let her talk to him and why she, like, he continued to pursue her quite actively mm. when he didn't really have to if he was still looking for that person to just be the one who does all the work. He was the one pursuing her, yes, which is yes. an interesting shift. And he's the one who said, just wait, let's give this a go. I think even in just those seeing that he hopefully has changed in some ways Mm. because and I think the point that the film is also trying to trying to make is you can erase the memory of someone well you can't but if you could you still Mm. can't really erase their impact on you and how they've changed you as a person 100% and again back to this like Oedipal influence that whole um, idea of the Madonna Hall complex or having mummy issues on an Oedipus level is in deeply ingrained in your subconscious like that's yes, the whole point yes. of freud is that you don't even have like a, a conscious understanding of what's going on so of course there's this idea that even if you erase memories you're still gonna have this like completely shifted psyche yeah yeah exactly i just want to finish up with can this actual procedure actually happen because it's very very interesting a concept very briefly dabble on the accuracy of being able to eliminate your actual memories. And there has been actual publications made on the potential of this happening. Um, There's also a TikTok creator called Neuroscience Theatre who looks at this movie and whether this actually could happen. But essentially what Lacuna bases its idea off is called 
reconsolidation. So the theory behind it is that memories can evoke a whole host of feelings, including joy, pleasure, fear, or grief, but memories are unstable during recall and can be manipulated, disrupted, or even strengthened during the process of reconsolidation. And I've always found that interesting because apparently when you remember something, you really only remember the last time you remembered it. So Mm -hmm. that's why memories are quite fallible and distort and shift over time because memory isn't perfect so taking off from that idea in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind the founder of lacuna howard um, uses the memory erasure to eradicate the emotional core of a memory upon forced recall of a specific declarative event and then when you eradicate the core you begin the degradation process that's what he says in the movie so it theoretically attacks multiple memory systems simultaneously to remove both declarative memories and the amygdala-based emotional memories associated with them. And then when asleep, each problem memory is triggered and then the patients remember the event as if in a dream state, which serves as the recall of the memory. And it's during that recall, that unstable state of recall, that the memories are raised. The study of reconsolidation is more about manipulating or influencing how a memory might be recalled rather than eliminate it. So that's kind of the theory behind it. In real world, there's memory altering drugs out there like beta blockers, for example, propanolol. I don't know if I said that right. Seems right. It looks right. It looks right. (laughs) Um, Which invokes that closest process for dampening the stress response associated with a fear-based memory. So it blocks that noradrenaline. Neurodrenic. Uh, that response during recall. So it disrupts, decouples the emotional response from the memory over time, which lessens the fear, but leaves the recall of the memory intact. So it's it's probably more a con- like a an actual phobia of an event that it would disrupt rather than the emotional trauma associated with loss or grief like we see in the movie because that's less specific. At the moment, current science lessens that negative emotion, but really not eliminates the memory so we don't have that way of doing it but it sort of works on that sort of notion and also in eternal sunshine it's like the brain is a computer with lots of different files of memory and that's just not how memory works unfortunately but again i think the idea of the memory of your memories being erased even though joel knows the relationship's over he wants to hold on to the memory in the end which i think is a again an important message of even if you could erase memories, is it always the best thing to do mm. for lots of other reasons? Was there any things that you thought that promoted a, a harmful stereotype or a trope that we often see in Hollywood before the manic pixie dream girl, which we've already kind of debunked? Yeah, it really is mostly the manic pixie dream girl that we've kind of discussed and and really kind of broken down my co-host and I did do an episode on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl for our podcast as well and we discussed I'll make sure we link that yes, in the episode notes. we discussed Clementine <laughs> at great lengths because again I kind of mimicked very similar things here that like she goes outside the bounds of that um, trope and actively you know says I am not that person but I think in terms of stereotypes again Joel's personality is a negative stereotype I think it kind of creates this idea of like a man needing a woman to save him from his problems Mm -hmm. especially when he has mummy issues and he has that kind of um, mentality I think the again 
also the daddy issues stereotype with Mary. I know we haven't touched on Mary as much, oh, but like yeah. her, you know, wafting around the the office and kind of pining after this older man in this like really creepy way is very, I think, harmful. And I think it's again mm. to it's it's purpose of the in the narrative is to explore the Oedipus complex from both aspects in a like lesser way but yeah I can't think of any other I guess like the again the negative stereotype around Patrick could also Mm -hmm. you could talk about that because he was just this creepy dude who was really um predatory and manipulative and I think that's probably one of the most harmful um things about the movie I do think like Patrick is the extreme version of the stereotype of, of the man who just wants a woman doesn't actually care who the woman is who they are because he basically falls in love with her while she's asleep yeah uh, which tells you everything steals her panties Um, as well steals her panties yeah (laughs) like disgusting and you know while it's a stereotype there are people like patrick out there um who who do that and probably uh get away with it a little bit more regularly but it's it's kind of like we don't want patrick to end up with clementine uh, and she sees through that pretty quickly too in terms of uh, obviously the procedure residual effects are coming into it as well. But you can tell that, you know, she's not that into Patrick. Yeah. And I think that's what ultimately causes her breakdown, like to her spiral, because I think she's really cognizant of the fact that like she wouldn't be making that decision without some level of like intervening. Yes. And that she's like, oh, this is, you're not the person I want to be with. Just leave me alone. That's why she doesn't even like actively break up with him because I don't think she even sees him as a boyfriend I think she's just like oh you're suddenly in my life okay cool but things still feel off you know yeah and and she it's like her intuition is like screaming at her and she's like yeah I'm listening yeah (laughs) but at the same time Joel's kind of like a subdued version of Patrick and that he sort of idealizes her in the same way like he says at the beginning of the film, he's just seen her. He's like, why do I fall in love with every girl I see who gives me the least amount of attention? And obviously Clementine wasn't giving Patrick any attention. She was asleep. But, you know, Joel doesn't – it doesn't take much for Joel to idealise Clementine and, and fall in love with her, quote, unquote, within minutes or seconds of seeing her on the beach. Yeah. So it's almost like the extreme stereotype of who Joel is. So we, we root for Joel. We don't root for Patrick, but should we root for Joel? Well, I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. And, yeah, I think also for me, Joel is like that stereotype indie sad boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'm always attracted to and always have been. Which I think always is will be. <laughs> why a lot of people will assume that Clementine is the Manic Pixie Dream Girl of this movie because yes. the counterpart to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is always the sad, self-loathing indie boy who just – wants you know to not be you, in that position you try and crack into yes you want to you want to get into as well because he's quiet and, and moody yeah and emotional yeah I feel like that's subverted too because he becomes more and more unlikable as the movie goes along and and as someone who's definitely relates more to Clementine than Joel and has dated lots of Joels <laughs> as, as you have like the frustration and the the difficulty of trying to get someone who's so avoidant to open up and communicate. Yeah. Um, you know, the sort of self-indulgence of that person, but, but, but also sometimes things they can't really help. Yeah, it's less desirable to actually be dating Joel. Do you want to talk a bit more about the other characters? 
like Mary and Howard. What are your thoughts? Um, well, as I mentioned, I think like Mary's infatuation with Howard is definitely problematic, but I think it's interesting from like because it's so brief, it is hard to expand in the way that we have on Joel and Clementine. But I think that what they're really trying to put forth in such a short amount of time is like this impacts very specific power dynamics so you've got Joel who's like this older guy who's got mummy issues who's trying to find you know these relationships that he ends up having toxic cyclical relationships similarly the relationship between Mary and Howard Howard is obviously cyclical because obviously he's uh, she's you know done this before she I'm not saying she's done this because it's not her fault but like she has made a pass at Howard before um they've had a relationship and she's forgotten it because he's again manipulated her because he has the power not only is he an older man but he's also her boss so there's a power play dynamic that is being abused in that situation for that to also be cyclical I think mimics or or helps kind of add another dimension to like the cyclical nature of a lot of relationships regardless of memories like there's this underlying theme throughout this movie that like you will end up in similar kinds of relationships over and over and over again whether they're with the same person or different people and that for me was like I'm really and as you literally said just before I've dated many Joels I (laughs) have dated one Joel I have dated one Joel who was again his own beast like he wasn't just a Joel right like he had other issues outside of that Mm. and other things impacting his actions and our relationship and so for me the biggest thing that I learned was that I didn't want to be in that kind of relationship and that's why I was Mm. so adamant about self-reflecting on that relationship on the podcast because if I can help someone else realize that they don't want to be in a cyclical Mm. kind of relationship again I want to do that so that's I think where that's kind of you know what what that's trying to I guess uh, uh, like how that sort of relates yes how that relates to Joel and Clementine's relationship I think Howard in, in general is just a bit fucking creepy he just gives me bad vibes same with Patrick I, I feel like all of the guys even as much as, as much as it hurts I can't remember his character's name but Mark Ruffalo's character he's also yes yeah, Stan. Yeah, Stan he's also a bit of a like I wouldn't say he's a he's a he's a freak or, or a creep I would say he just seems more like a self-indulgent kind of man and like he's just trying to get yeah. into Mary's pants because I don't think they're actually in a relationship. No, uh, yeah, you kind of you're not sure at various parts throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah, and he clearly whatever it is, it's it's not really official. Mm. Um, he's awful to Patrick, but he deserves it. Yeah, but yeah, they're all sort of just acting in their own interests. Yeah, really. I think the wife, Howard's wife, is like my favorite side character because she's like, "You stupid little girl," yeah, and like Howard, funny. you're a fucking cunt. Like, I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. I'm sorry. Yeah, you can. Okay, good. <laughs> and yeah, it's funny when I when I first watched it wasn't until recently rewatching it that I realized that Howard actually manipulated uh, Mary into going through the procedure. Yeah. Like at first, in the first few watches, it, it didn't. Like because he, tell, he, he, he tells he her, her that he that she wanted it. She was like that you she wanted, wanted the it. procedure, and I think realistically it was like once she that I think that's why she gets so mad and sends everyone mm. their tapes to expose the situation for everyone else because I think she's realized that like this is really fucked up and we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, she's like especially that light bulb given. Moment. Yeah, especially given that that was under false pretenses. Yep. So how many other people have yep. had this happen under false pretenses and um, they deserve 
to know just like she found out. Yeah. But yeah, it, like it's a really good point. It's almost reflective of that trauma creating that repeated patterns mm-hmm. or, you know, things that those early relationships, you seeking that out in your partner repeatedly, repeatedly, yeah. repeatedly. And I guess through the release of what had actually happened and being able to release all those tapes to everyone, that's kind of her healing moment to hope, hopefully, you know, light bulb, I, this isn't the kind of relationship I want to be in now. So I guess everyone has their moment. Which is also interesting because like the whole timeline that they're, that everyone is finding out that they have undergone this procedure is the same time that like Joel and Clementine have just met for the second time without realizing it. So yeah. they're feeling this like connection between each other, which is going pretty unsaid. And then, you know, she finds the tape first. Oh, so he finds the tape first or was it the other way around? I think it was the um, tape about him. She gets it first. Yeah. She because goes, she goes to her. They go yeah. to her place first. And then he makes her get out of the car because they listen to it in the car. That's right. And he's listening to all these things that, she said about him and I think that's the first time regardless of whether or not he has his memories that he's ever had someone like expose him to himself in that way like I don't think anyone's ever held up the mirror to him so I think he's probably like even though it's like such a brief moment in the film compared to the rest of the other um memories and things like that it would have been an interesting like eye-opening thing to for him to hear and be exposed to and then you know she wants to hear the same in a response because she wants she feels like you know she wants to know all the gritty details of the relationship so that they can make up their mind about whether or not they want to be together again and ultimately like learn from those mistakes because I don't think there's actually anything wrong with trying again in a relationship you've already been in technically I think plenty of people can like break up and make it work a second time or a third time around because I definitely believe like there are definitely people in our lives that we will be drawn to and we will like have really deep connections with. Um, And you shouldn't be ignoring that. No. And I think, I think the key thing for me has always been professionally and personally (laughs) is if the, if when you get back together, the problem that made you break up in the first place hasn't been resolved. It's going to happen again. Like you can start again if, there has been some resolution or way forward yeah. from whatever made you break up in the first place. And they have a real opportunity to actually address the things that led them to that yeah. point in this movie, because they've got the evidence right mm. <laughs> in tape and form. Al- And almost arguably without this like highly emotional level of like this prism of emotion that they would be coming. Like, you know, if you've experienced it, again, you're like reflecting on it from your own perspective. They're coming at it from a more objective place because they have no memory of what really happened. So they're able to listen to things from his perspective, from her perspective and go, okay, objectively, this is what happened. What happened must have been something in the middle. Yeah. 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 It's actually quite it. And I think, like I said, the first time I watched it, I was like, well, relationships are doomed. (laughs) We're going to end up with the same person that we broke up with and it's all going to happen again. But now watching it and also, you know, maybe because I am in a, in a currently healthy relationship, obviously with my husband, it's, it's like now actually seeing it in a really hopeful place yeah. in that, you know, you can learn from your relationships and hopefully ma- not make the same mistakes you made or, you know, ha- have that insight and awareness at least to, to stop repeating the same patterns and it can actually work out. Yeah. Well, let's finish up with our last category of helpful or harmful. I feel like there's some helpful messages Mm -hmm. in this film. I definitely think there's obviously 
we've talked about perhaps a message for men to stop objectifying and idealizing women, mm-hmm. um, which is a message that Joel learns. And also, I guess in a way, a message of being true and genuine to oneself, even though they know they are likely to, to disappoint each other again, they know their patterns, they are open about that mm. and they want to try it again. And being open and honest and vulnerable is only a good thing um, rather than trying to be something you're not. So I got that message from the film. Um, I definitely think like the whole idea of stopping objectifying um, women and idolizing them because that's such a problem. I think like because there is this Oedipal influence, I think it's also like this idea of like addressing your issues before you enter into a long-term relationship, whether that be daddy or mummy issues or attachment mm. issues, because obviously yeah. Joel has attachment issues like hugely (laughs) yeah um Mm. and that it's important to uh, come to a relationship after experiencing life and kind of understanding yourself a lot better and that's probably going to be how you end up in a more healthy relationship yeah definitely I think the last message as well is how fragile memory is Mm. and how despite being so fragile it still gives us meaning obviously as someone who's luckily not gone through too much trauma in terms of memory trauma it might feel different um to someone who has you know real experiences of ptsd and and the symptoms of that memory can be really awful having to relive and and remember things again but rather than trying to eliminate or stop memories there's other ways to manage it that might actually be more fulfilling uh give more meaning and um you know, lead to truths about yourself, I guess. So I guess one of the articles I read was saying, like, can memory be healed rather than suppressed or manipulated? Is it possible to have an objective take on another person's soul? Um, how does memory give us meaning to a person's life? So we, I feel like we kind of see that in how Joel's memory of a person ended up making and, – and, like, the way that – he starts to imagine Clementine mm. in his memories, telling him what to do. And she's quite a um, helpful, positive person. Like she, he sort of turns it into, you know, all the thoughts and things that she says are his thoughts and, and feelings, but he's attributing the sort of personality of to Clementine saying those things. And in, the, in a way that kind of is healing for him Mm. so he can wake up and and be a better person essentially (laughs) okay any harmful messages in this film i i mean as we kind of said like that kind of goes hand in hand with the stereotypes i think um yeah if you're watching this film and you're kind of only taking away the negatives it's kind of missing the point altogether because i think i think personally like the best films or the best stories expose negative themes in a way where you can take positives from them and that's definitely what this film does yes again like this idea of like only viewing um women a certain type of way and like it's like the it's like the gender roles of it and like how i i I think the helpful things can also be like harmful as well like if you yeah it can be read both ways yeah (laughs) always is (laughs) yeah definitely and i and i think if you were watching this movie on a surface level you might perceive it as well Clementine's a manic pixie drinker and you know she's a she's a quote-unquote slut and things like that and you know I don't looking at it through Joel's lens but it is quite slut shamey towards Clementine she's not perceived as 
you know, it's not a great treatment of women as a whole, but because it subverts that stereotype and it turns it on its head and she ha- has a lot of autonomy really, it, it's better. Mm. But again, like we said, we don't know anything else about Clementine's life. So it's still, you know, I don't even think it passes the Bechdel test. Does that matter though? I don't think the Bechdel test matters that much, to be honest. <laughs> uh, it's a very flawed test, let's be it's honest. It's very flawed. And I think that's what, like, my, like, I think there's really great movies that do pass the Bechdel test, but there's also really great movies that don't pass the Bechdel test. Because yeah, exactly. sometimes you kind of got to talk about men to really go through. <laughs> like, me, like, men are the crux of all things wrong in the world. So we got to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> It's, it's absolutely true. And if, if you were to see it as a depiction of BPD, I think it would be a helpful yeah. depiction of BPD. Yeah. But I guess not naming it or, you know, assuming or coding it could have some harmful effects mm. in that where, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a bit it's a bit of a hit and miss in terms of could it be helpful? Could it be helpful it's in terms of mental health? Literally a movie from 2004. How, like, can we really put that much weight and expectations on it to be helpful, really? <laughs> that's the whole point of this podcast, India. I know, but, like, that's, that's the thing. Is like, I think... But you're right, you're right. Yeah, like, it, it, you know, when we're looking at things, we have to take in cultural context and temporal context Absolutely. is important. And it was made in 2004. And I think that... The, the considering that it's pretty yeah good. considering that and, and I think that the that's kind of again to the point of the podcast is we're reflecting at it from our perspective of like we're in 2022 how have things changed and how are things improved or you know why is this an issue now and wasn't an issue back then for example yeah just like um re-watching butterfly effect which yes. I think was around <laughs> the same time uh, I think it was 2004 you, as well yeah yeah I feel like because it was just after Donnie Darko, maybe just prior, I can't remember. Um, looking looking at a movie like that and imagining that being made today in the same way mm. is just, like, horrifying to imagine. If they like, wanted to fit that amount of trauma, it would be, like, four movies. It, w- <laughs> it would have to be an anthology <laughs> series. Yeah. Like, you, you couldn't And do even it. that would be a bit brutal yeah. to watch. <laughs> I think one last thing I'd say, and I don't, I'm not sure if this even goes here, like... You know, essentially, should Clementine have chosen Joel or should she have just gone and lived her life? The fact that she chooses him could even be suggested as maybe a disappointing outcome of this movie. What do you think? As the film ends, Joel and Clementine meeting again and, like, having this moment of accepting, ultimately kind of accepting the repeating cycle of their relationship and, you know, deciding actively to enter into another relationship again, which I think is the key difference is like, they're both active participants Mm. in deciding to be in a relationship rather than just like falling into a relationship. Cause it seems like from the memories, it was just like a, they spent a lot of time together. We're in a relationship kind of situation. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to point out that the tone of the dynamic and that conversation, like I said, is very different even you know him like actively participating in pursuing her and her being like well you're gonna find things wrong with me and him saying well even if I do I'll I'll face that instead of he's he's saying like I'll I'll actually kind of look at that and understand why and there's like much more raw emotion um and definitely a lot more openness and there's things and, and like it's starting from a very healthy place. Yes, he, more healthy he's, than most relationships. He's much more receptive to seeing her as like a flawed human being rather than just a one-dimensional like 
projected Manic Pixie Dream Girl as he wanted in the first place. Um, I think it just ends up proving that another one of the film's points is that you know, coming back to this idea that we've already, when when you've already experienced something, even if you don't have the memory of it, it's still going to impact you subconsciously and fundamentally change you. And because of Joel's previous relationship with Clementine, whether he remembers it or not, he, it's still a part of who he is now. And Clementine's yeah. also ultimately changed as well from that experience, which I think is why she's, again, like I said, so quick to fuck Patrick off and be drawn to Joel again, because I don't think she would have done that in that instance had yeah. that she not had that experience or that history with them and yeah, um yeah. and as Joel says at the beginning of the movie which is technically after the memory erasure you know as he's getting onto that train like he's not an impulsive person but okay why did you do that impulsive thing like you know what mm. I mean so it's mm. just I think that um at the end of the day like I think they are destined to be in a relationship with each other because obviously they have this like deep connection Connection, and I think that I do believe in destiny I am one of those people I'm sorry I believe that (laughs) everything happens for a reason (laughs) I feel like some people really hate that um and so I think yeah there's definitely a purpose to their relationship and I think that the whole idea is we're supposed to come away from it's going okay they're they're trying again Mm. and it's it's definitely going to be different this time yeah because otherwise why would they why would they try again why wouldn't they just be like well obviously you thought all these bad things about me and i thought all these bad things about you why would we be together and it shows that they're both really emotionally whether it's from what they've been through or not they're both quite emotionally mature people for the fact that they want to give it another go despite yes. the things they've heard the, each yes. other say about them i think we've made it to all our categories Firstly, lived experience. I think it gets a pass personally because nothing's actually named. Charlie Kaufman's obviously someone who sees himself in a lot of that or writes himself into a lot of the characters he does. Mm. Um, And it's not really a mental illness movie, let's be honest. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think it passes in that sense? I think it passes. Yeah, good. Accuracy in terms of what we see. I think this is a hard one because, again, it doesn't purport to, to say anything but what they're trying to portray but in terms of relationships i think it's definitely accurate it's it's he's obviously been through some relationship stuff (laughs) so let's give it a point and then stereotypes like i feel like i'm happy because it really subverts those but what do you think i don't i I agree and i think we we've we've covered why yeah in those in that category (laughs) yeah (laughs) and do you think it's more helpful uh film to watch I guess in terms of seeing relationships and um the emotional impacts of those or is it a more harmful mm, I think it's actually helpful because I think and this goes back to the particular way that it, the, the story is told through the um non-linear uh, mm. storytelling I think it helps you understand that when you are remembering a relationship you're remembering it incorrectly and even Mm. if you're looking at the film and you're not realizing that we're seeing Clementine through Joel's perspective because I think that's something that a lot of people miss when they watch this is like yes I certainly did when I was 17 mm. (laughs) our perspective of a lot of these characters are pretty much all through Joel's perspective and so when you're coming at this from a perspective of someone who's so self-loathing and so down on himself and and like not depressed but like it's just not in a good headspace of course there's gonna be bias there and um when you're not actively like 
trying to look for those things it can be really hard and I think it's that's why the film is broken up as a film nerd (laughs) when there's a difference between actively watching or actively participating in media versus passively participating in media and this movie forces you to actively participate in it by thinking about the story because you have to figure out temporally where you are yeah so you have you have to think about the things that might go unnoticed in if we were just seeing this movie from point A to point B. Because you are basically Joel throughout the film, like reliving yes. what we've already seen when he goes to Lacuna, etc. And the mm-hmm. distortions of the memory, like it's a, it's like an experience rather than just a film. I definitely yeah. agree. Well, I think it got an A plus for all of the things, which makes me very happy because I absolutely love this movie and I'm so excited yeah. to rewatch it again and I could, <laughs> I could rewatch it. And it was, it was great because when I was doing my like research and notes, I had the soundtrack on, on a mm. loop and it's such a beautiful soundtrack too. We didn't really yeah. talk about that. It's just gorgeous. John Bryan is the composer and then there's a few songs there. Like Beck does Everybody's Gotta Learn Sometimes, which you can't find on Spotify, which makes me very mad. Thank you so much for talking with me about this awesome film. That's okay. It's my pleasure. I very much enjoyed it. And we've sat here and talked for a long time. So So I shall let you get to bed. Um, But before we do, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about that's coming up for you or for the podcast? We've got some really great interviews coming up. Um, Steph's going to be on Hot Girls Theory. Yes. little spoiler. That won't be for like maybe another month or so, but... um, We'll have Steph on the podcast and we'll talk about pop culture and mental health just like we are here. So awesome. come and check it out. Um, you can find me at Fueled by Indie on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. I'm pretty active on TikTok if you use it. Um, find the podcast at Hot Girls Theory on all social media platforms except for TikTok. It's HGT podcast because we got uh, ridiculously shadow banned and censored for having Hot Girls Theory because it's a Chinese app. So oh, just right. look at up there (laughs) yeah and the podcast is on all of the podcast platform wherever you listen to podcasts please check it out I'm very proud of it and hopefully some of your listeners will enjoy it yeah that's pretty much everything I have to plug right now it's a busy (laughs) podcast and you're a busy girl Um, so thank you for making time for our podcast I'm so excited to go on yours yeah it'll be good don't forget to rate and review us we're ever you listen to your podcasts and become a patron if you like it costs less than a melbourne coffee which is actually not saying very much because they're very expensive and follow us on instagram also on tiktok and twitter and join our facebook group and thank you so much we'll see you next time This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.